You're listening to Dots, Lines, and Destinations, a travel podcast with host Stephen Seagraves, Fosma Moon, and Seth Miller. Hello, and welcome to episode 441 of Dots, Lines, and Destinations. This is Seth Miller doing an intro this week in a very strange environment. Stephen is on the call, but he wanted me to do the talking. Hey, Stephen. <laughs> How you doing? And Foz is here as well. Uh, always excited to have you around. And... Uh, Perhaps most exciting, though, for us this week is a special guest. We have David Sunday, who is the CEO of Landline. They are the company that's running buses on behalf of uh, American, United, Sun Country. I think that's it right now, maybe more. Um, and he'll correct me when I get things wrong, I'm sure. But uh, excited to have him on, uh, especially because in the last couple of weeks, Landline has done something kind of huge uh the, the bus is now inside security and so david welcome to the show um tell us a little bit about what you're doing with these hey guys yeah thanks thanks for having me and if i can just call them a Chiono incredible podcast uh name uh <laughs> so 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 envious that it was taken it's just uh it's, <laughs> it's all in theme so um yeah thanks for having me uh seth you're correct we uh we are a multimodal multimodal connectivity provider for uh, major airlines in the U.S. Uh, we don't call them buses; we call them landlines. But I'll, I'll allow it uh, this this one time. Fair. Um, so yeah, this week, you know, really, it's uh, it's. I think it's probably more accurate to say it's landline and American Airlines in partnership have done something that no one else um, has done before. We're uh, so grateful to our partners at American, um, who you know, together uh, with us went to TSA and um, you know spent the better better part of a year and a few months um, getting something that no one had ever done before done, which is uh, moving people between two federalized airports who have already cleared security using something that doesn't ever leave the ground. Uh, we launched this in Atlantic City in Allentown uh, last week, connecting to Philadelphia. Uh, we've, we've actually connected those cities with American for about a year now, uh, but this is obviously a really exciting development. It's something I think American Airlines customers are, are going to love. Yeah, I mean... When you launch those first two cities, uh, you also launch Lancaster service. Correct. That, but that one's not inside security yet. No, not currently. Yeah, there's a the uh, the operational setup at Lancaster is in um, the, the airport's basically a slightly different uh, kind of threshold of security. So uh, we'll we'll get there. Uh, we have some work to do um, around around badging and stuff like that. But uh, but yes, you're correct. We started with three cities. Okay. Um, and that's good to know that, you know, the program's going to grow. Um, what what are some of the benefits you're seeing in terms of, you know, sort of the security uh, implications? I mean, how, are you change, able to change a minimum connect time for the passengers? Is it is that translating into better connections? Is it how's it working out? Yeah, I, well, I think I bucket into into like industry benefits and customer benefits. So for the customer um, yes, the minimum connect time decreases um, to basically whatever the eagle to uh, AA connect time in Philly is. I think it's about 40 minutes. Um, so it cuts down 15 minutes on the inbound um, to Philadelphia. Um, and then all the kind of other intangibles, just the comfort and convenience of getting to go through um, your own hometown airport. I mean, I think uh, everyone's experienced the, the um, magic of like going through a small, you know, small town U.S. airport getting there just right before boarding parking's easy there there are no headaches you know it's just a, it's an easier more convenient customer experience um and th- like that i think just makes people's life you know better um so that's kind of the, the customer benefit the industry benefit 
I think is e- most easily summed up just looking at the last 20 years. Like, you know, traffic grows, you know, roughly in line with GDP every year. Um, so compounding over, you know, many, many years has grown many multiples. Uh, but the number of people or the number of places you can actually clear security in the US has gone down. Um, it's just like a very simple kind of back of the envelope uh, heuristic. It's like traffic's at an all time high places you could actually be inducted into the system all time low. Um, so I think what we do in the, in this, uh, what, what Landline really does for the industry is it puts more infrastructure back into play. Um, and it, and it creates kind of systemic rebalancing of, of, uh, the screening load. Um, there's no, at this, you know, maybe someday, uh, there will be a, a case for it, but right now it's like, there's plenty of great airport infrastructure in the U S it's just that the kind of supply demand dynamics in the, regional airline business um, for, for the past you know, five, 10 years have meant that a lot of that infrastructure doesn't actually get used. Um, and so that's our you know, long-term view is that we can be an agent of kind of redistribution of screening load. Hmm. And, and along those lines, David, what are like some of the biggest hurdles uh, landline seen in operating the services and have the partners, your airline partners been satisfied or are they seeing struggles too? Are they suffering with anything that they're, they're having to, to come to you guys with? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so just to kind of bucket your question into two parts there, um, like the biggest challenges for Landline have been, I think, just you know, proving that this is actually a good idea, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, for lack of a better term, um, you know, proving that people would do it, proving that it could exist um, on the secure side of airports. You know, it's this isn't the first time that U.S. airlines have used motor coaches um, by any means. I think it's just that we're, we're demonstrating that it can be done at scale. It's something that customers actually like. Um, and that really involves kind of knocking down people's preconceived notions of buses and their capabilities like one month at a time. Mm-hmm. And that means, you know, anything from, oh, people are going to be really upset, you know, the product's going to be bad to sort of, I guess, you know, invented constraints on what a bus can actually do. Like there's no, you know, law of physics that's like an airline has to use airplanes or a bus can only carry an airline passenger this far there's only kind of data and experience. And like our experience has been that uh, people love our product and they'll travel up to four hours comfortably on it, uh, which I think blows most people's minds uh, when they hear that, that that's uh, you know, possible. Um, and certainly not what you'd expect. So that's like part one, it's just proving that this is a good idea. Part two, you know, what challenges do airlines face that I guess have them, you know, calling our, our uh, sales team, um, and I think the the word there is all about constraints. And it's not just, you know, pilot constraints. It's aircraft constraints, airport constraints. Like the industry is outgrowing its infrastructural base. And we provide capacity that exists kind of in its own in its own world, if you will. Um so we can grow at a much different rate with a lot less um a lot less like infrastructural pressure than you can grow with airplanes right now. Mm. Oh, that's great. From a from a logistics point of view. Uh, my my one of my curiosities is what happens if a a landline vehicle uh, breaks down in between Allentown and Atlantic City and Philly? Sure. Um, so you know by now it, it has happened. Uh, I will say we run an incredible operation, um, super on time. Like everything on the ground is just slightly more reliable. I'd say. Yep. Um, when we do have issues, you know, flat tire, whatever traffic, um, it's it's just like um you know any other flight. So our uh, our team, our SOC is tied into our airline partners, operations control centers. We notify them. Um, in some cases, you know, tight connections are uh, resolved by you know, airplanes being held. So it's 
it's really no different than what would happen if you misconnected from an airplane that had some sort of delay. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just maybe like the resolution is a little different. I think in the traffic example, it's actually a, we have a huge advantage over you know you driving yourself um, because if you were in your own car, you'd hit that traffic and be um, kind of out of luck. If you're in a landline, you know the, the airline partner knows that you're you're on your way to the airport trying to make connection, and you're going to be accommodated onto another flight um, should you misconnect. Can you guys, I mean, you, you talked about sort of the the solid infrastructure available and getting people in through airports, basically using an alternate location in the hub. Uh, could you guys set something up in the parking garage at Denver and just bust people inside? Because those lines are terrible. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, a, it's an awesome question. I mean, I I, um, I think there's what we can do today. And then there's like what our kind of North Star and our vision is. I mean, our vision is very much around a world where the airport is distributed into smaller places. And sometimes that'll be a small airport. Maybe someday it'll be, you know, a parking lot at a Walmart or, or whatever. Um, I think that's, uh, we have a lot more to prove before we can get there. Uh, but it's, you know, it's important to have a vision of where you're going. Um, right now, uh, we're just happy to be able to like prove that this, this can happen reliably. Um, across our network, we have already picked up at places that are airports um, so actually with United, we we operate to a location in Breckenridge. Breckenridge, of course, has no airport. Um, but you get picked up and dropped off right on Main Street, like 300 yards away from the gondola. Um, and it doesn't provide security yet, but you can already you know get rid of your skis and your bags on your way back to Denver. So already reducing a lot of stress. But, um, but yeah, hopefully someday in the future, um, you know, who knows when, we can, we can really deliver on an amazing, like, you know, distributed screening experience um, in a big way. So one quick question that I have is, so in the case that you have a flat tire, something breaks down with this new pre-clearance of security, what happens once you're sterile? Yeah. So once, once you're sterile, you really, um, you can't, you know, there's really no stopping um, and certainly no opening the door until you get to the perimeter fence of the um, destination airport. So if we did have an operational disruption, we would simply bring people landside and rescreen them. Uh, obviously, we don't want that to happen. Customers definitely don't want that to happen. Uh, but I think that's one of the things that we had to prove over over the years. You know, is that uh, we run a reliable enough operation that that isn't going to happen very often, um, if at all. Okay. Um, the American partnership you have is sort of branded as American Airlines service and the others the united and the sun country they seem to be a little more branded heavily on the landline side of things how do you, who makes that decision and how, do, how does that come about yeah great question it's partner by partner and it actually varies geographically we you know um in newark uh, we have a very uh you know we have a single branded kind of totally integrated operation with united in denver it's slightly less so um and it really just depends on what um the airline wants to do and what makes sense for the geography um, we are, I guess, a little bit like throwing it back to when, you know, there were independent, um, regional carriers or more of them. Um, there's still a few left that, you know, we're equally happy to, um, have a prorate agreement or a capacity purchase agreement with, with a partner airline. Um, and it's, um, for us either works, you know, I, I think in places like, um, like St. Louis or Columbus, like going forward, like larger cities that are dominated by one carrier, it's great for us to have the ability to just be a code share partner uh, because in an ideal world, we can mix and match a couple different codes and provide value to everyone. 
um, in an airline's hub, I more often, you know, carriers want us to be dedicated to them. Um, and that certainly allows us to do a lot more on the operational side to make the customer experience better. Um, as far as like operating to gates, carrying bags, you know, making it um, a cohesive brand experience, like all the way down to the safety briefing. Um, so it just really just depends on what, kind of what, where it is and what the carrier is looking for. Gotcha. Uh, one last question here um, as we sort of push through all of this. Uh, you mentioned four hours as a sort of threshold, which is surprising to me in the duration. I probably will speak for Stephen and Foz and say we all are. Um, <laughs> we'll believe you. Uh, does that give you an opportunity to get into some of the EAS markets, potentially essential air service, if you could convince the feds that, you know, transportation into the national air system is what matters, not how you get there? Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful, you know, we could apply today under an alternate program, um, and we would just need the support of an airport uh, behind us to do so. Um, and I think, you know, increasingly as the air options, uh, become more scarce. I'm, I'm hearing from more airport directors that that's of interest. I think people are starting to realize that, um, you know, it's all about price and schedule. And what I mean by that is like having a, a, land, a multimodal option that has many frequencies per day versus, you know, one or two departures a day on a, uh, you know, small regional jet that's going to be really overpriced. Um, it's always going to be better to have more frequency that gets you know, gets people out of their cars and using your using your airport. Um, and so I'm hopeful that you know in the next couple of years that'll that'll yield some AS opportunities for us. Uh, I think that exact logic is why uh, you know four hours is a thing. And I totally can understand why that sounds like an outrageous amount of time. You know, spending four hours on a motor coach to connect to a three hour flight. But you know, at the end of the day, most people are buying based on price and schedule and um, are hard products really comfortable? And so, you know, if, if the price is right, um, you know, you're going to take our, our option over, over others. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, for our Patreon subscribers at the end of the episode, we are going to get David back on for a couple other bonus questions, uh, with the rest of the content. But, uh, for now, we're going to say again, thank you very much. Uh, congratulations on getting inside security and look forward to seeing where landline goes. Well, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Thank you. And we're back with some regular topics. Thanks again to David Sunday for joining us. Um, Hyatt and MGM, the partnership is dead and has repl- been replaced by Marriott. <laughs> it's been a weird week. <laughs> and it has it's just started. I was just saying, that's like, it seems like the smallest of the weird. In the yeah. Yeah. It's, it's strange. No, hard to not. This is valuable to MGM at least, right? Bigger customer base. That's what I was going to say. Is like I think like Foz and I are both prone to go Hyatt, um, but I think the Marriott footprint is bigger for MGM. Um, but but here's the thing: there's a lot more Marriott properties on the Strip and near the Strip as well. That is that's fair. That is fair. There are Marriott branded properties very close to the Strip or literally on the Strip. So it's interest. I mean, it's interesting. Um, I wonder if this has to do with the Cosmo acquisition from it by MGM, though. Mm, oh, like to offset that? Like some kind of they want a bigger partnership or, or what? Like if somehow this was part of the deal of, what, of MGM acquiring the Cosmo that they had to switch programs as well. Okay. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. So you mean you won't be able to earn super cheap Hyatt Nights, you know, anymore at MGM? Yeah, but you can earn super cheap Marriott Nights, which are worth way less. So that's great. <laughs> so even more is going to go to Vegas, though. Not really. 
Can you do that just like digital check-in and just get your credit? I guess you could. I guess enough people did do that stuff, didn't they? Yeah, I think people did. And this isn't like setting up a deal with a local four points and faxing them in a list of names and account numbers every night. <laughs> These people are staying but not staying in your room. Yes. Please make sure to give them all the points and stay nice that they deserve. Here's your money. Yes. Faster free nights. <laughs> Wasn't quite what they meant with that promotion, but I got, we'll work with it. Anyway, uh, I mean, doesn't I was going to say, it doesn't change my stay patterns in Vegas, which is as as little as possible. Um, I think I think we all are in agreement with that. Yeah. And some people like it there. Yeah. Yeah. We've had guests on the show that love it there. Producer loves it there. Yeah. 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 It's very true. Um, tell me about uh, Emirates shifting 777-8 orders to the Dash 9 order. Eh, they did. 16, they had, at one point had 16-8s on order. Um, their order book was restated with Boeing at the end of June, and it no longer shows the Dash 8s. Still, they kept the 16, but they've got the Dash 9s only now. Mm. And from what I can tell, only Etihad is a Dash 8 customer today, and Etihad's order book is soft. What what um I mean what's the benefits of the dash eight over the dash nine? It's smaller, so it's just it's a cost thing. Potentially, I think so. Yeah, I mean, has it got longer range with the fewer people, or is it? It's just, it's just a smaller plane. I, I would imagine there probably is a range factor in there. I haven't looked it up. Um, right, like the, the analogy I can sort of figure though is the uh, the A three thirty Neo. Right, you've got it. They've sold like. 10 of the Dash 800s mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of the 900. And the 800s is like a, the Dash 8 on the 830. It's, it's, it's shorter. It's a stubby version, right? It looks like a stubby version. Yeah, it's a smaller plane with... It's supposed to be the equivalent of the A330-200 just in Neo form, and the 300 becomes the 900. Mm, gotcha. If that makes sense. Um, yes, it does. Sorry, the Dash 8 does have a longer range than the Dash 9 by about 1,000 nautical miles. So... That's significant. Mm. Um, but the only thing I can, you know, it's hard to tell other than Project Sunrise, which shows the 350, uh, 1000. Like, what are the, what is the demand for that incredibly, incredibly long range of service? And who's going to go to the 800, or excuse me, the Dash 8, who needs that range versus, and takes, and I think one of the challenges, I want to say, we saw this with the 787-8 and Dash 9. Mm-hmm. The Dash 8 is a sh- essentially, not quite, but more or less a shrink of the Dash 9. And so trip costs are almost identical. And you've got so much more potential both for cargo and passengers on the Dash 9 that it's like, there's a few airlines still taking the Dash 8, but it's getting harder and harder to find smart reasons to do so. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll go ahead. I'll, no, 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 it sounds like the Dash 8 is like the 200 LR. <laughs> or will become the yeah. two hundred dollars. Yeah. And no one really flies those anymore. There's a few out there. There's a few. There are a few. Um but like other than being the base for the freighter, that wasn't a huge seller. I mean on, on that point though, Foz, I mean it's kinda like it's kinda like what I've brought up with United and Seth kinda already answered it, right? Like the seven six seven three hundred ERs are getting very long in the tooth. And my thought, my first instinct is go to the, go to the 787-8. Oh, it's too much plane though. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And then it's like, so do these routes, I mean, I think the long-term question is, are, is United willing to fly empty seats on some of these 787-9s 
on 763 routes because they can carry more cargo. I, mean, um, I think they can always introduce a high J config. That, yeah, that's true. 80, 80 J seats. Um, I mean, look, I think what I would actually see in the next generation is a high premium economy mm. config because they're just, and a lot of these places like London's a great example, there just isn't enough premium economy seats. People are willing to pay for it, yeah. but they're just, they just aren't there. Don't worry, Global Airlines are going to fix that with their A380s. And I'm not even going there. <laughs> but, I mean, I would also argue that I don't think United's, all of United 763s are so old, right? There's a bunch of the XOI ones, which are nowhere near the age of the pre-merger United ones. Mm, yeah, that's true. But I think their bigger problem is, you know, they have pre-merger United maintenance, not pre-merger Continental maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, we'll just defer that. Don't worry about it. Defer it. Yeah. Speed tape. <laughs> fixes everything would you guys write clothes instead of packing a suitcase N- no no okay. <laughs> so then don't fly out <laughs> they've announced a program where they'll rent you a wardrobe for your destination to try to cut down on so uh, it raises an interesting question that I had in regards to this because I remember reading about this now I re- think back to a number of years ago I was in Seoul and I had either torn or pour, uh, spilled something out of one of my pairs of jeans. So I went shopping for a pair of jeans. Being an American, there was nothing in my size. <laughs> are you worried that if you rented clothes from Jow, they wouldn't be in your size? It's like, how are they going to manage that aspect of the different body demographics from people from different parts of the world? Yeah, it's, it's a fair question. I mean, I uh, I would struggle probably with the same thing. I don't know. I, mean, I wouldn't I do this. Yeah, yeah. We won't, you're got your get your waders on. Is that is that what you're gonna have? I'm just worried <laughs> that the pants will come down to my you know mid calf. It'll be great. <laughs> uh, let's let's talk about new, new United first class seats. Yeah, out there now, right? They're out there, and uh, the first one, it's been announced. I don't think it's actually entered service. Okay. I, I like the fact that we're already announcing the next generation when two generations ago are still flying. Two, three. Oh, okay, three. You Can I get a four? Yeah. Can I get a four from the audience? You've got you've got the the really old continental seat. The Coitos. Yeah. The, the old Coitos, which are arguably the most comfortable. Like no sh- no, Coitos no. shouldn't be in service anymore. They can't be. Oh, that's right. Uh it's the it's the ones that have no storage pocket next to them, boss. Like in the I will, so I thought were all the Coitos a problem? Because I just flew on one of the old old domestic coitos not that long ago uh i know there was a 10-year limit i can't remember if it was the entire company or only certain models but i knew the business class seat was a problem i just don't know yeah. the domestic anyway i know the economy seats the domestic economy seats definitely were the united continental had a ton of they had to replace all of them at one anyway yes there are a ton of different united models out there i mean part of this though is you got a 200 and something new airplanes coming over the next three years and they're going to have the next product on board right like it's annoying from a spare parts and maybe from a passenger consistency perspective, but how how long are you supposed to keep the old model on new when you're getting hundreds of new planes a year? I mean, I, I get that part, but we're still flying seats that are twenty four zero twenty four years old. Yeah, like that haven't been. Like I, I I have sat in the same seat on the seven three eight that I used to sit in the late nineties. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, and we're gonna get new headrests though, so that's cool. So so let's let's talk about the seat real quick. So it's got a privacy divider between the two seats. Great, I guess. Um, 
It's got, I got the a couple of responses. No USB. Sorry, I got a couple of responses on Twitter about the privacy divider from people saying that like their significant other insists on holding their hand during the flight. So now United's a no go. I that, that's okay by me. Yeah, that more upgrades for us. I yeah, exactly. <laughs> my wife will be happy not to hold my hand. <laughs> or or there's always coach. Yeah, there's co- yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the thing. I mean, it's interesting that it's a privacy divider. I it's interesting that it's not movable. It's another breakable part, so I get why United didn't do it. Um, then the US, there's no USB A anymore. It's all USB C. I think that's a big shift. It's actually probably a good thing um, in the long term for United. Um, you can do power delivery via USB C. You can do a bunch of different stuff. So I always wonder if that is driven by durability because half the time the USB A ports won't work. That I mean, it could be. I mean, USB C is just as finicky though if you're not careful, right? So. Um, and it has a wireless charger as well for your phone, which we'll see how long that lasts. A uh, couple spilled drinks later and it's gone, I guess. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm skeptical. Oh, and the, it has like, uh, wings at your head. So you, I guess, don't look over directly at somebody or you can lean on something. So what's old is new again. Yeah. The old Continental ads with the wings and the coach seats. <laughs> I do remember that. Yes. Um, what do you think? What do you think, Fuzz? Besides besides it being, you know, another seat, what do you think? Let's see how comfortable it is. Like, at the end of the day, that like you can give me all the doodads and uh, novelty things, but unless it's comfortable, I, I don't care. Yeah. One of the other interesting you- things about it, they said they worked with an ergon- professional ergonomist to make sure everything, you know, the cushions are right and shaped correctly and whatever. But they made it like an inch lower to the floor. Mm-hmm. And I, that I've, I've been at the trade show at aircraft interiors twice now where I've sat down in a seat and looked at the guy and been like, this seat's the wrong height. I was like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. I was like, this one's a half inch high. This one's too low. The, the tray table's lower than it should be. And every single time they've looked at me and said, yeah, we changed that. And I know that's my OCD going a little off the rails here, but like, are people going to like that first time you go and sit down and it's an inch lower, you're going to like collapse into the seat and be like, whoa, I like I was falling. Yeah, it's it's weird. It is weird. An inch, an inch lower will be noticeable. And they say it's to help make it more comfortable for a shorter passenger or for passengers of all heights, but obviously shorter. Um, so you don't have shorter passengers don't have their legs dangling. But uh, it's an interesting choice. I'm I, I think that there's a couple of things I think. I, so the current generation of first class seats in United I, I don't love um, for a number of reasons. One, the tray table being in the middle armrest, um, I think it's been it's a problem. Uh, you can't set anything really on the on the the middle divider because the armrest is so big, and then the uh, the actual table flips out to where the drinks would sit, and it just causes a lot of issues. Um, so this, now you can't set anything there because there's a privacy divider there. Well, yeah, but you but you do have a drink table at the front of you the do. privacy divider. Um, but now the tray tables in the, the opposite armrest from each other, which I think is a good thing long-term. Um, it's also, sorry, it's on the tray table. Uh, it would appear that it's a single piece tray table rather than a flip, uh, foldable, uh, which is also good. I think. Yes. Very good. Just one less thing to, to break. Um, I, I do wonder, and one of my other complaints is getting out of the seat in the current FC. It's tighter than it was before, partially because of the way that that armrest in the middle was designed with the drinks. I don't think that's going to get any better with this new table or this new seat. 
Um, so we'll see. I'm not, I'm not super excited about the inch lower. It'll be kind of weird. I, I feel like, but we'll see. We won't, we won't know until we try it. Yeah. Um, and the first, the first plane to fly it is a retrofit 737-800, which is also well, interesting. I mean, I, I'm glad that they hired all these ergonomic folks and designers, but the question is, did they talk to them before, after they talked to the bean counters? <laughs> or the customers. Or the customers for that. But I mean, because we've seen occurrences in the past where they go in with the right intention and then someone sees the bill and then starts, you know, down gauging the stuff. Yeah. The components yeah. for, to solve for a price problem and not the original design. Um, and then lastly, Air India had a triple seven that was grounded at uh, San Francisco for a week after it collided with some ground equipment. Kind of crazy. Yeah. Oops. Was this the Bangalore plane? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, what's interesting to me about that is, from what I can tell, they actually flew their own staff across to repair it rather than contracting that to say, I don't know, a major triple seven operator at that airport that happens to be a alliance partner and runs a huge MRO facility. Wow. That's, that's, they seriously did that. That's what I understand. But, okay. So you fly your own people. What do you do for tools? Beg. <laughs> Beg United. Do you still not have to go to the same operator to borrow things? It's in t- or like space to do work. Well, there's or whatever a- the spare parts were. I, I don't know. It's a w- very weird they have, they have the old United hangar over by the water. But the airport owns, I believe, at this point. So okay. it's not a single carrier. So that's not... So I, I think the space is a little less of an issue, but it's the... Like it's you still think, Yeah, it, it's still silly. There's no doubt about that. Oh, they went to Home Depot when they landed and got everything they needed yeah, to put it put it back into working order. Right. <laughs> that, that's confidence inspiring right there. <laughs> I cut oh. aluminum, a pack of rivets, a rivet gun, and a torque wrench, and just go at it, man. Yeah, yeah. Have some fun. It'll be great. At least they have uh, harbor freight. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, man. Um, well, I, I think that's an episode. Uh, we have a little bit of bonus for our, our Patreon subscribers, including the discussion with uh, David. And so we'll jump over to that. But uh, thanks for listening, and happy travels. Okay, 